Welcome to Understanding the Law, Week in Review. The show is hosted by Peter Lamont and Bob Hughes and is a service of the law offices of Peter J. Lamont. The firm has offices in New Jersey, New York, Colorado, Puerto Rico, and affiliated offices throughout the country. Understanding the Law, Week in Review is a weekly radio broadcast discussing recent legal and business news. As always, we welcome calls from our listeners. If you wish to discuss any of today's topics, please call our switchboard at 347-855-8831. Please note that this broadcast does not constitute legal advice and does not create an attorney-client relationship with any of our listeners. And now, your hosts, Peter Lamont and Bob Hughes. Good morning, everyone. This is Monday, August 18th, 2014. Peter is out of the office today. Hopefully, Bob will be calling in soon. My name is Robin Bull. I am the fill-in host and director of programming for Understanding the Law. We have several quite interesting stories for you today. And as always, we do welcome your opinions. You are welcome to call at any time at 347-855-8831. First story we have is straight from ABAJournal.com. I'm sure many of you have seen this on Facebook. A Florida man was arrested after a videotaped beating of an autistic boy goes viral. Florida man has been arrested in connection with the videotaped beating of an autistic 16-year-old boy at, the house, at a house party. Andrew Wheeler, 18, of Okeechobee, has been charged with child abuse without great bodily harm, as reported by WPTV. Wheeler was arrested Sunday after being recognized by police in a video posted to Facebook and tagged to a Facebook profile bearing his name. The victim told detectives he was invited to a party last Friday where he drank alcohol and was then told to go outside and fight someone. The teen said when he refused, Wheeler was summoned. He said Wheeler followed him outside and choked him until he lost consciousness and hit him in the face. A police officer later found the victim lying in the road. He was taken to a nearby hospital where doctors said he was treated for a sprained neck, facial and scalp contusions, and a concussion. Wheeler claims he received a call about a, quote, drunk guy, end quote, at the party who wouldn't leave. He says he drove to the home and went inside to take that person home. And when he tried to take the teen outside, he said the victim tried to hit him. Officers say Wheeler admitted to losing his temper and hitting the boy. Police have also arrested Evadine Daly Lidecker, the owner of the home where the party took place, and charged her with contributing to the delinquency of a minor. Um, I saw this video on Facebook this weekend, and it was quite a disturbing video. Um, I would hope that the charges stick, but we all know that at the end of the day that it's really easy for them to plead down and take lesser charges. It's really important as parents that you know where your children are going to be. We can't watch them all the time, but it's important to know what's going on. And if you're going to do something on and video it, I, I guess that's the big kicker. If, if you're going to do something stupid, you know, make sure you don't get tagged in Facebook. Our second story also comes from ABAJournal.com. The Fourth Circuit panel refuses to put a stay on the same-sex marriage ruling. A three-judge panel of the Richmond, Virginia-based Fourth U.S. Circuit Court of Appeals has refused to stay its ruling last month, 
striking down Virginia's ban on same-sex marriage. Unless the U.S. Supreme Court intervenes, the two-to-one decision will pave the way for same-sex marriages to begin in Virginia this Wednesday. However, Prince William County Circuit Court Clerk Michelle McQuig on Thursday appealed the ruling to the U.S. Supreme Court, which has already received an appeal of the panel's decision from the state. Legal observers, sorry about that, my screen went blank. Legal observers widely expect the court to block the ruling from taking effect as it has already done on behalf of state officials who appealed a similar decision in Utah. It's definitely going to be a very interesting case. I really don't see um, that same-sex marriage will stay illegal long in any state, for that matter. Um, At the end of the day, marriage is a legal binding contract. It's, It's not just something that is recognized by any religion, Christianity or otherwise. It is something that is a legal binding decision, and you have to meet the basic elements of the contract in order to get married. The basic contracts you know, the basic considerations for a contract include consent. Are the two people getting involved in the contract? Are they legally able to consent? Are they of age? Are they mentally sound? Um, And then, of course, there has to be consideration. Who's going to get what? And what are the terms of the relationship? This is not something um, that people necessarily need to be worried about in the sense that... um, Same-sex marriage definitely will not affect straight marriage. If you're in a straight relationship, this really is the least of your worries. Um, There's absolutely no reason why people should be upholding this. If you're upholding this on a moral ground, that's a little bit different. The nation is not expecting courts who oppose same-sex marriage to be forced into performing ceremonies. It's just to ensure that people can marry the person that they choose. In short, they can enter into a legal contract with the person that they want to enter into it with. Another story from the ABA Journal. The name of the officer in the Ferguson shooting is released, and the ACLU is suing for incident reports. Ferguson Police Chief Thomas Jackson has identified the officer who shot 18-year-old Michael Brown last Saturday. As we all know, that shooting sparked lots of protests and clashes with police. Jackson identified the officers Darren Wilson during a news conference on Friday as reported by the New York Times. Wilson has been an officer for the department for six years. President Obama has now called for a transparent investigation saying that there's no excuse for this looting and no excuse for the excessive force by police. Meanwhile, Attorney General Eric Holder met with civil rights leaders yesterday and said he was deeply concerned about the deployment of military equipment and vehicles on Ferguson's streets. Police say the shooting of Michael Brown followed a struggle for the officer's gun, but witness accounts said Brown had his hands in the air when he was shot. The shooting is under investigation by the Justice Department's Civil Rights Division, the FBI, and the U.S. Attorney General's Office in St. Louis. The ACLU filed a lawsuit on Thursday to obtain initial police reports on the shooting after police rejected the group's record request. The ACLU says the report is required to be released under Missouri's open records law. The ACLU also filed a separate suit on Thursday seeking a declaratory judgment that police are violating the Constitution when they bar reporters from recording on Ferguson streets and sidewalks, the Post-Dispatch says. 
we've seen a lot of questions recently, and, and you'll see a lot of things on Facebook right now, about whether or not it is legal to videotape the police. And the answer is yes, it is. Peter actually has a very informative video about this very subject on his YouTube channel. Um, I will make sure and get that shared out to all of our relevant social media sites again today. As long as you are not in an area that you will be obstructing the investigation, you are able to record. One of the best things to do is to tell them that it is to provide a third-party objective video that can be used by either side of the incident. Another thing that seems to be striking people most about this current situation in Ferguson is the different stories that you're getting. You'll see on Facebook people say that Michael Brown deserved to be shot because some people say he had just robbed a store. Other alleged, other allegations include that he had lunged for the officer's gun. The fact of the matter is because we don't necessarily have video that showed what happened between Brown and the officer, we can't really say for sure what happened. Officers are given a wide, wide use of discretion in their jobs, and most of the time this is a good thing. However, it's not necessarily a good thing when you get into situations like this. This type of force, deadly force, should be the last form of force used. And for those thinking that Michael Brown had robbed a store, most often people who steal things from stores are not taken down by use of deadly force either. There is absolutely no reason for this 18-year-old young man to have been shot and killed. Um, we have a saying where I'm from, one shot to disable, ten shots to kill. So even if Michael Brown was doing something that put the officer's life in danger, and we are not saying that that happened, one shot would have sufficed to disable someone. And the fact that militarization has now been used and that this is becoming an ever-present and ever-current, ever-occurring incident with the police, this is definitely something that needs to be looked into. We'll go ahead and move on. If you have questions or comments, make sure and give us a call, 347-855-8831. seems like every week we've had something that's had to do with parenting, and this week is definitely no exception to the rule. This is also from the ABA Journal. Mom faces disorderly conduct charge for dropping the F-bomb while shopping with her children. The mom was shopping in a South Carolina supermarket, with her children and her husband. Another shopper reported to police that she had dropped the F-bomb at her children. The, sh the mother says no, she was addressing her husband, not her children. Her husband was squishing the bread under other groceries. Danielle Wolf is the woman that is that was arrested despite an argument between the woman over the remark. The other shopper reportedly did not want her arrested. However, in front of Wolf's husband and her young children, the police came to Kroger in North Augusta and arrested her. Danielle Wolf must now appear at a September court hearing. A police report of the incident provides further details. It notes that Wolf was handcuffed and searched before and after being transported for booking and says the other woman in the incident agreed to testify against Wolf, but she refused to provide a witness statement. So you have a woman who is shopping, an adult who drops an F-bomb, which 
definitely is not appropriate around children in, in any way, shape, or form, but it's not against the law. We do have freedom of speech, and yet she was arrested simply because someone else didn't like it. I have a pretty good feeling that this will end up getting thrown out. Um, back to one of the ACLU, we, we mentioned that a little bit earlier, ACLU lawsuit wants freedom of the press defined after the Ferguson demonstrations, and this was reported on KTVI. As the national media makes their way to St. Louis, those telling the stories are becoming part of them. Washington Post reporter Wesley Lowry and Huffington Post reporter Ryan J. Riley were arrested by police last night, and then they were released with no charges. The executive director, ACLU Missouri, Jeffrey Mittman, is quoted as saying, the police are instructing protesters and the media to turn off their video cameras, to turn off their cell phones, to stop recording. That is absolutely improper. We as the public and, of course, the media have a right to and must document encounters that occur. The ACLU Missouri filed their second lawsuit in St. Louis County Civil Court. The first asked for the Michael Brown arrest to be made public record. And the second suit is asking a judge to offer a ruling that makes media coverage clear. When you look at the Constitution, media coverage is relatively clear. We definitely do have freedom of the press. In fact, there are many instances that are more that were in history more outrageous than the Michael Brown shooting, the Ferguson disaster, that reporters became involved in where they should have just stayed out of it because it ended up making a situation worse, or where families, such as Robin Williams' family, has asked for privacy, and yet their lawn and things of that nature have been trampled because people seem to think they have a right to know what's happening. Even bloggers are most often protected by freedom of the press. So I hope in this instance, I'm not necessarily a huge fan of the ACLU, but I hope in this instance that they are able to win their case. Another ABAJournal.com story. A woman who was jailed for 48 hours for not paying a $2,000 truancy fine suffers a heart attack or heart failure and dies. She was jailed for 48 hours in Pennsylvania for failing to pay $2,000 in truancy fines and costs on behalf of her children that had been adding up for over a decade. Eileen Danino died there after only a day. A Berks County Coroner's Office report released Thursday attributes her death to natural causes, including heart failure, high blood pressure, and fluid in her lungs, according to the Associated Press. Danino's cellmate, Nicole Lord, told WFMZ that jail staff did not provide medical attention to Danino, even though the 55-year-old began moaning and saying she was in pain and could not breathe some 12 hours before her death. A state police investigation is continuing, and some Pennsylvania lawmakers are suggesting revisions, including a measure known as Eileen's Law. It will offer alternatives to jailing those who can't or won't pay truancy fines. Eileen's Law would require school districts to develop individual plans for resolving children's truancy issues before seeking help from the legal system, another WFMZ article reports. Current state law provides for those who don't pay truancy fines to be jailed for up to five days. You know, there comes a time when your children get bigger that you can't necessarily ensure that they stay at school. You could drive them there yourself. You could drop them off. You can watch them walk through the front door. But unless you can 
physically keep them in the building yourself, you can't necessarily determine that they're going to be there. And the school definitely will not take responsibility for making your child stay. We actually had an incident like that at our home where a truancy officer showed up to pick up a child who hadn't lived in the home for more than a year and his mother, who also had moved out more than a year before. We've contacted the school. We had contacted the truancy officer with the police department. We contacted the school board. All of it was to no avail. Um, there, there, just, there has to be a better way than throwing parents in jail when their children don't go to school. Another ABAJournal.com story, they definitely had a bunch of good ones over the weekend. A law student is arrested on attempted murder charges in a mobile home fire. A law student at St. Mary's University Law School in Texas has been arrested on charges of attempted murder and arson in connection with a mobile home fire in Louisiana. Matthew Edward Alexander, who is preparing to enter his second year at the law school, was arrested Tuesday in San Antonio on warrants out of Monroe, Louisiana. He was arrested at the school's Center for Legal and Social Justice after leaving a class, a law school spokesperson said. A three-sentence press release by the Washita Parish Sheriff's Police says Alexander was arrested on two accounts of attempted second-degree murder, arson, and aggravated arson. The charges stem from a fire which occurred at a trailer home while two persons were inside. The law school is evaluating Alexander's status as a student according to Express News. I would think in this instance it would be really it really does put the, the uh, law school in a difficult spot because we are innocent until we are proven guilty. On the other hand, law students do have to take an exam to determine if they are morally fit to practice law. Another great story from ABAJournal.com, Ron Goldman, you remember him, he was with Nicole Simpson, and they both tragically died back in the 90s. Ron Goldman's mom puts unpaid O.J. Simpson judgment up for auction. The mother of Ron Goldman has put her unpaid wrongful death judgment against O.J. Simpson up for auction. Sharon Rufu, Rufo listed the judgment on Tuesday, reports the Associated Press and CNN Money. Her son, Ron Goldman, was killed along with his friend Nicole Brown Simpson in 1994. O.J. Simpson was acquitted in the murders the next year but held liable in a civil suit in 1997. He is currently in prison for an armed robbery to acquire his sports memorabilia. The unpaid judgment can be purchased immediately at judgmentmarketplace.com for $1 million. Absent that offer, the bidding will be open for 30 days. The website values the judgment at $24.7 million with interest included. I, I can't really see anyone bidding and paying a million dollars for a debt that will never be collected. It's one thing for debt collectors who buy medical, credit card, and other debts at pennies on the dollar um, with some hope of being able to retrieve the money, but they definitely would have a hard time getting paid in this instance. IBTimes.com, woman files a maternity lawsuit, yes, you heard that right, maternity, against Jay-Z and Beyonce claiming she is Blue Ivy's mother. Jay-Z and Beyonce's marriage is being rocked by another scandal. This time it's in the form of a woman 
claiming that she is the mother of the couple's daughter, Blue Ivy Carter. Tina Seals claimed in a lawsuit that she filed in Manhattan, New York, that she is Blue Ivy's mom. According to the legal document, Seals wants to, quote, verify whether she is the biological mother, end quote, of the two-year-old and that she was, quote, previously associated, end quote, with both Beyonce and Jay-Z. It's unclear what she meant with her lawsuit. She might mean that she was the one who gave birth to Blue Ivy. It can be remembered that Beyonce was speculated to have used a surrogate for her baby and just faked her pregnancy for the media. A photo of her collapsible baby bump circulated online when she was pregnant in 2011, which some people thought was proof enough that she wasn't really pregnant. According to StarCasm.net, Seals also previously filed similar suits against Kim Kardashian and Kanye West regarding their daughter Northwest against Mariah Carey and Janet Jackson in regards to her brother Michael Jackson's children. Even the Duke and Duchess of Cambridge, Prince William and Kate Middleton, also became Seals' targets. You know, certainly shows that some people just have far too much time on their hands. And as a mother, I can tell you exactly the day of the week and the date and the time that I gave birth, even to my child via cesarean section. I don't think that this lawsuit is going to last very long. From the Washington Post, Colombian lawyer says he's suing FIFA for $1.3 billion for bad refereeing. A 74-year-old Colombian lawyer, Aurelio Jimenez, is suing FIFA for roughly $1.3 billion after things did not turn out in Colombia's favor during a World Cup quarterfinal match against Brazil, as reported by the BBC. Quote, I decided to sue FIFA in the Colombian judiciary system because in the past, World Soccer Championship in Brazil, there were many wrongdoings related to referees who damaged many countries and their selections, among them the Colombia team, end quote, Jimenez told the BBC. He added, I felt very bad. I was heartbroken. My cardiac rhythm was altered, and my relatives took me to the emergency room at the hospital. I was surrounded by my grandchildren who were crying a lot. Jimenez puts particular blame on Carlos Velasco Carbello, the Spanish referee, who called the Colombia versus Brazil quarterfinal on July 4th. He told BBC he has evidence in testimonies of soccer stars Pele, Diego Armando, Maradona, David Ospina, James Rodriguez, and international referees who examined the videos of the games between Brazil and Colombia. Rodriguez and Ospina may not be the best eyewitnesses, however, because they were playing in the match that ended with a 2-1 Brazil win. These types of complaints when it comes to soccer refereeing are inherent to the sport. However, since multiple on-field referees and the use of video replay is not permitted, Basically, all the game rulings fall to one person who may or may not have had a good view of the action depending on where he or she was situated. The inherent subjectivity in soccer refereeing is one of the reasons why Jimenez is unlikely to succeed in his case, despite whatever, quote, evidence of wrongdoing, end quote, he claims to have. However, his case may succeed in adding to the increasingly loud calls to allow for a change in how soccer games are called. The Netherlands had been leading the charge, developing technologies and systems to all video replays during matches. They recently announced that they would be introducing their innovations to FIFA, calling instant replay 
quote, video referees, end quote, as the future in football. And the small chance that Jimenez is successful in withdrawing money from FIFA's coffers, though he tells the BBC that the damages would go to the government and earmark to improve the welfare of Colombia's children. I just, I really have no words. It, it's, it's back to you. Some people just have far too much time on their hands. From CNN.com, girl age three dies after Maryland gun battle involving driver and police. A three-year-old girl died Saturday after a man and police engaged in chase and gun battle, said police in Prince George County, Maryland. Police spokesman Lieutenant Bill Alexander said police began pursuing the man early in the afternoon when he drove a Nissan Maxima away from the scene of a shooting in Temple Hills. One of the wheels fell off the suspect's car as he stopped and exchanged gunfire with police, Alexander said. The suspect kept driving. Remember, he's already lost a wheel. But stopped again and traded gunfire with police a second time. The man was killed in the second exchange. Inside the vehicle, police found the wounded three-year-old who later died. Police said they don't know who fired the bullets that killed the man or the little girl. CNN affiliate WJLA said the police believe that the man was the girl's father. Two two wounded people were found at the scene of the first shooting, the three-year-old's maternal grandfather and maternal great-grandmother, police said. They were in critical condition at hospitals, Alexander said. That's just a, it's, it's a very, very sad story indeed. It, it leaves a lot of open endings. Um, when I first read the story and earlier in the week before I found out that maternal relatives of the little girl were also injured, the first thing I thought of was a story that I had read a few years back about a man who took the idea of take your son to work day a little too seriously and took his son with him when he went on a crime spree. But once you find out that there are other relatives who are injured, and particularly from one side of the family, it definitely makes the situation suspect. We definitely don't have all the facts here, but it will be interesting to watch and find out exactly what happened and what led up to this tragic, tragic death of a little girl. Another CNN.com story, the MMA fighter who allegedly assaulted his ex-girlfriend was arrested after a manhunt. After a week-long manhunt, authorities have arrested mixed martial arts fighter Jonathan Copenhaver in Southern California for allegedly beating his ex-girlfriend in Las Vegas. Copenhaver has been on the run since his ex-girlfriend accused him of assault on August 8th, according to a CNN affiliate, KVVU. At the time, police were called to Las Vegas to a Las Vegas home at 4 a.m. and found two people suffering from non-life-threatening injuries. One of the two, adult film actress Christy Mack, said Copenhaver beat her several times during the August 8th incidents, according to the affiliate. In Twitter posts shortly after the alleged attacks, Copenhaver appeared to address the issue. He said he had gone to the house to surprise Mack with a ring and ended, quote, up fighting for my life, end quote. He also said, quote, the cops will never give me fair play and never believe me. Copenhaver is awaiting extradition to Nevada, the affiliate reported. There were other tweets as well. I read some other stories regarding this incident. Um, Essentially, he was automatically on the defense, and I'd read some other stories related to the entire situation where Ms. Mack has alleged that this is not the first incidence of domestic violence. She finally was 
able to get away. And from what I read, she ran to she ran to a neighbor's house and received help that way. Um, it's really a sad situation indeed. I'm sure everybody has seen this all over Facebook. That's where I originally saw the story. There was a single mother of five who uses text messages to convince a thief to return her stolen van. This is from KCTV5.com. A woman used text messages to convince a thief to give her back her stolen van. When Megan Bratton walked out of a Kmart store near U.S. Highway 24 and Missouri Highway 291, her van was gone. Bratton sent a text to the cell phone that she knew was inside her van. The first text, understandably so, wasn't so nice. Three hours went by, and Braxton just kept texting. Then, on her final text, she desperately pleaded, quote, OMG, car thief people, can you just give my van back? It would be epic, the miracle I need right now. Bratton said, and then he texted me back and gave me step-by-step directions where to find the van, and I went there with my mom and my dog, and the van was there. The thief sent a single mother a final text which read, quote, I do feel bad. My kids needed a meal on the table, so that's where their dad got them food. I know it's wrong, but it's been so hard since I lost my job. Bratton said she didn't have the heart to follow up with police. Police says say, of course, that it was very risky for Bratton to return to pick up her van without calling them. They would have gone with her. Bratton said, even in one of her texts, that she tried to tell the thief how bad the van was, that it leaked transmission fluid. When she got the van, there was an empty bottle of transmission fluid in the van that had been used to fill it up. HuffingtonPost.com Report of Charlie C-H-A-R-L-E-I-G-H, Mattis finds a swastika in her McDonald's sandwich bun. Charlie Mattis lost her appetite when she found a swastika made from butter on the bun of a chicken sandwich at McDonald's. Mattis says she discovered the unappetizing symbol while putting mayo on her sandwich purchased at a McDonald's in Moorhead City, North Carolina. Although McDonald's employees offered to replace her sandwich, presumably with a bun not alluding to Nazi atrocities, Matisse declined. I really didn't have an appetite at that point, so I said I'd rather just have my money back, she said, according to ABC News. Matisse was not satisfied with just the money, so she contacted McDonald's corporate headquarters about her swastika bun. Shortly after her complaint, she received a letter from Dulcie Purcell, the owner of the Moorhead City McDonald's, stating that the employee who allegedly put the swastika on the bun has been fired. Matisse has since accepted the apology and plans to eat at McDonald's again. I don't know. That's that's pretty serious. Um, you know, those those are things. Getting fired for such things really can keep you from finding a better job in the future. Um, a lot of states, you can't necessarily give a bad reference if someone calls to check your references, but you can definitely decline to comment, and sometimes that's really all it takes to cost you a job. Bloomberg.com. Al Gore is suing Al Jazeera over a $500 million current TV deal. Former U.S. Vice President Al Gore and Al Jazeera, or I'm sorry, sued Al Jazeera, claiming the satellite news provider owned by the Qatari royal family owes him and a partner $65 million from a deal to buy his current, to buy his network current TV. 
Gore, age 66, and Joel Hyatt, another. For former current TV owner accused Al Jazeera and American Holdings of fraud and breach of contract and are seeking undisclosed damages in a sealed complaint filed today in the Chancery Court in Wilmington, Delaware. The men allege that Al Jazeera illegally tried to seize $65 million in escrow funds tied to the $500 million buyout. Buying Gore's channel and rebranding it gave Al Jazeera America access to 43 million U.S. homes. Gore was to make an estimated $100 million on the sale of the network, which he helped to start in 2004. After debt, he was to gross an estimated $70 million for his 20% stake. People are familiar with this transaction, had stated all of this last year. Gore said at the time he wanted to create a, quote, transformational, end quote, network. Revamped as current TV, it would, like YouTube, thrive on a useful viewer input be an antidote to Fox News and a liberal competitor to MSNBC. Instead, Current failed to make such an impact at all, while Gore was paying himself $1.2 million a year in salary and bonuses, according to the 2008 Securities and Exchange Commission's documents filed as part of a proposed public offering that was later withdrawn. The cable news network has faced challenges gaining an audience in the U.S., partly because Americans may remember it, as a forum for Osama bin Laden's video messages after the September 11th terrorist attack. Al Jazeera has since hired big-name personalities, such as former CNN anchors Soledad O'Brien and Ali Velshi, to help build its U.S. brand. If this story doesn't show you that politics is all about business, nothing will. From JonathanTurley.com, which is, quite frankly, one of the best legal blogs out there, a federal judge issues a ruling that Bloomfield City Hall must remove the Ten Commandments monument. U.S. District Court Judge James Parker of the New Mexico District ruled a monument displaying the Ten Commandments must be removed from the Bloomfield New Mexico City Hall. This lawsuit was filed in the district on behalf of two members of the Wicca religion by the American Civil Liberties Union against the city. Judge Parker's ruling stated the city had violated the Establishment Clause of the First Amendment to the United States Constitution. In his ruling, Judge Parker wrote in part, quote, The Ten Commandments Monument is government speech regulated by the Establishment Clause because the Ten Commandments Monument is a permanent object located on government property and it is not part of a designated public forum open to all on equal terms. A statement from the ACLU read in part, quote, The decision is a victory for the First Amendment's protections against government-endorsed religion. We firmly support the right of individuals, religious groups, and community associations to publicly display religious monuments. But the government should not be in the business of picking which sets of religious beliefs belong at City Hall. We hope that the Ten Commandments Monument will find a new home on private property in the city where people can continue to enjoy it. I think that is absolutely the right decision. There are several several places all over the nation that have this particular situation. We even have one going on here in Oklahoma. Um, basically, we have a group of Satanists who are wanting to erect a monument next to, I believe it's next to the Ten Commandments that is near our 
state capitol building, I can't remember exactly for sure, and of course people are up in arms about that, but they don't want to take down the Ten Commandments. Really in this situation, you have to remember that when you want something strictly because it's based on your religion and you want to claim that there is a right to freedom of religion, according to the Constitution, you have to remember that applies to all religions as well. WashingtonPost.com, a University of Illinois professor, loses his job after anti-Israel tweets. The University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign has retracted a job offer to an outspoken critic of the conflict in Gaza, according to a letter released Wednesday and signed by the university's chancellor. Stephen Saleda, a former Virginia Tech professor, had been offered a tenured appointment as an associate professor in the American Indian Studies Department with a salary of $85,000, pending approval from the Board of Trustees. Such approval is essentially guaranteed, and his start date was set for August 16th, the Chicago Tribune reported. But according to Inside Higher Ed, quote, sources familiar with the university's decision say that concern grew out of the tone of his comments on Twitter about Israel's policies in Gaza, end quote. As the blog pointed out, criticism of Israel is not unusual in academia, nor is it that rare at the University of Illinois where varying viewpoints of the Israel-Palestine divide has played out in the pages of the campus newspaper, The Daily Illinois. In an August 1st letter obtained by the Champaign-Urbana News Gazette, Chancellor Phyllis M. Wise and Christopher Peer, the Vice President for Academic Affairs, wrote Salada, quote, Your appointment will not be recommended for submission to the Board of Trustees in September, and we believe that an affirmative board vote approving your appointment is unlikely, end quote. For weeks, Salada's tweets have been very, very focused on criticizing Israel. Campus spokesman Robin Kaler would not comment on Salada's status, but told the News Gazette, quote, Faculty have a wide range of scholarly and political views, and we recognize the freedom of speech rights of all of our employees, end quote. But Carrie Nelson, a University of Illinois English professor and former president of the American Association of University Professors, told the Chicago Tribune that, quote, it was valid for the campus to basically say, we better take another look at this guy, end quote. He also told the Huffington Post that Salada had, quote, stepped over a line, end quote. Seems to be... A very interesting story. I can tell you as someone that has taught college, a lot of that does depend on the college. And, of course, it depends on the Board of Regents, and it also depends on the organizations that offer accreditations to said university. Um, In some universities, they will have a morality clause or they will have something that states that you're not allowed to give out those opinions even on your own social media pages because, in reality, whether or not you're you're on campus or off, you are still representing the university, and that is just something that you have to remember, and it really doesn't matter what field you're in. It's something that you have to remember regardless of where you work. That is one major reason why so many employers will try to find you on social media is to see if they would like you to be a representative of their company. We are almost out of time today. got time for one more really short Story, and it's also from jonathanturley.com. From pageant to prison, a California woman arrested for alleged workers' comp fraud after competing in a beauty contest. Shauna Lynn Palmer, age 22, dreams of being a beauty queen, but that may have ended in jail after she was arrested for alleged workers' comp- compensation fraud. 
following the posting of a video showing her competing in high heels despite her claim of a debilitating foot, foot injury as a grocery clerk at Stater Brothers. Byron Tucker, the state's deputy insurance commissioner, is basically quoted as saying that Palmer had beauty and bravado, but, a notab- but notably a lack of brains in appearing on the show. She claimed that she was unable to work in the Riverside store due to a broken toe that prevented her from putting any weight on the foot. She said that she was required to use crutches after her injury. Shortly after filing that claim, she was seen competing in high heels in the contest. Palmer's new set of judges gave her a perfect three felony count of defrauding an insurance company, and she could receive up to a year in jail, three years probation, and restitution of $24,000. really does not pay to not pay attention to what you have going on. All right, so that's getting close to all of the time that we have today. If you're looking to get in contact with us, you can visit us online at www.understandingthelawradio.com. You can also visit our blog at topbusinesslaw.com, where you will be able to download our free app. Our app allows you to ask a licensed attorney your legal question and get your answer for free. It is 100% There's no in-app purchase, none of that. It's just something that the law offices of Peter J. Lamont offers to the public as a service. Thank you so much for joining us today. Make sure and join us on Thursday. Tomorrow we should be doing um, legal Q&A live. Until then, we hope you have a great day. Hi, it's Jamie, Progressive's Employee of the Month, two months in a row. Leave a message at the... Hi, Jamie. It's me, Jamie. I just had a new idea for our song about the Name Your Price tool. So when it's like, tell us what you want to pay, hey, 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 and the trombone goes, blah, 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 and you say, we'll help you find coverage options to fit your budget. Then we just all do finger snaps while a choir goes, savings coming at ya, savings coming at ya. Yes? No? Maybe? Anyway, see your practice tonight. I got new lyrics for the rap break. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law.